0: Hello, good evening, and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're so glad that you are joining us today. A Reason for Hope, in case this is your first time with us, is an hour live broadcast guided by your Bible questions. So questions you have on uh, passages in the Bible that may have confused you or you want to delve deeper into, or maybe you're going through something in your life that you would like a biblical perspective. We are here to seek the Lord in His Word with you uh, Reason for Hope is a Ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of, of Tucson, and so you can join us in multiple ways if you go to our website CalvaryChristianfellowship.com, go to the Watch Live uh, tab. you can view us there or on Facebook, at Calvary Christian Fellowship. you'll find us live there as well. On, on uh, YouTube, it's a reason for hope. Uh, you can watch us on Roku and Apple TV as well. Uh, just look for the Calvary Christian Fellowship app and what am I missing? those are all of our platforms we have an app as well a church a church app you can watch us there live as well and so send your questions in on the chat uh, function on those live platforms or you can email that's what i was forgetting you can email us your questions uh to questions at gmail.com that's questions for hope all spelled out at gmail.com if you're listening to us on the radio, reach radio or one of the affiliates you're listening to our last show pre-recorded but do send us your questions via email and we will get to those on our next show i'm dave robson i'm your host today with me here in the studio don't laugh at me you're doing great man. i am i'm doing okay <laughs> your second time yeah second time. it doesn't show <laughs> uh with me today of course once again sean Richards, pastor sean Richards is is here as, as always great to see you how are you doing today
1: it's been an interesting day definitely a lot of time in the word and hopefully others will benefit from it
0: well amen to that and also pastor peter martin uh pastor and author uh-huh. working on your third book right now i believe right yeah. can you hurry up with that i've read the other two you yeah, know too know. many times i need to hurry up with it yeah. <laughs> it's great to be here with you guys um peter would you like to pray as we jump into the time together
2: yeah absolutely that'd be great Uh, Father, we love you so much, and we're thankful for you. We do pray that right now we can uh, get into these questions in a way that honors you and honors your word. Allow us to do that, and in your name, amen. It's true.
0: Amen. Well, I understand you guys have a tradition of Apologetics Tuesday, is that right? Yeah. And it's Tuesday today.
2: Tuesday is today. So you know what that means. Unless you're on the radio, and then it's Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) Wednesday. Well,
0: that will tell you which uh, pre-recorded version you're listening to. But (laughs) did you guys have something you wanted to discuss today? Yeah, Yeah,
1: over the past couple months we're leading up to Protestant Day, and of course the solas of the Protestant Reformation have been the focus, clarifying not, of course, to intentionally bash but more unintentionally correct some of the issues that were brought up during the Protestant Reformation that the Roman Catholic Church were putting not necessarily in conflict with, there were times where they did that, but more in improper order concerning Scripture and tradition. And today's we'll discuss the issue of penance and perhaps others as well, but uh, the topic of things that need to be done in order to follow through on confession which I think is where any conversation needs to start is where do these things fit into the Bible which of course there is going to be some ground otherwise they wouldn't be slipping on it but we need to make sure that it's properly handled and properly followed through on with other areas of Scripture and of course consistently acted upon by those who were immediate followers of Jesus not who just claimed his authority so when it comes to penance obviously there's a concern that a lot of people have have who believe in sola fide, faith alone, that faith alone is what restores us to a relationship with God. And we've been going through that for the last couple of weeks, but the real key emphasis that a lot of people seem to lose track of when dealing with those things isn't just, okay, so I've believed in Jesus for the remission of my sins, but have I followed through on that properly? How do I know that my life is lining up with my claims? And so, churches, for better or for worse, will give you lists of things to do that can show that your confession and your repentance were genuine. While the desire to have a settled heart is not necessarily a bad thing, doing it in conflict with Scripture is. We want to put truth before our feelings to quote a Jewish scholar of our modern day. So when it comes to penance, obviously there are things, and again, the word is a part of repent, but the idea of aligning yourself with your real status before God, what would be some of the things we'd agree with scripturally, and what would be the aspects of it we'd challenge?
2: Yeah, yeah. So remember, we're reading straight from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is not our opinion. This is a codification uh, that I think was done the last 30 years by the Catholic Church to help condense down their various doctrines. And we're going through what are called the seven sacraments. So uh, the sacraments of the Catholic Church, I don't have time to kind of go into the full detail, but they're essentially efficacious symbols of grace. So uh, the ones that we've gone through so far is we've gone through baptism, we've gone through Eucharist, and we are now getting into penance. Now, the reason why these three in particular are so important is because the Catholic Church would teach that these actually do have efficacy in your ability to access the grace of God. So it's not that you can't be saved by faith, it's that that faith-based salvation doesn't have effect unless you are engaging within the various sacraments. So uh, this is, again, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church regarding penance. This is what it says, in imparting to his apostles his own power to forgive sins, the Lord also gives them the authority to reconcile sinners with the church. This ecclesial dimension of their task is expressed most notably in Christ's solemn words to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The office of binding and loosing which was given to Peter was also assigned to the college of the apostles united to its head. The words bind and loose mean whomever you exclude from your communion will be excluded from the communion with God. Whomever you receive anew into your communion, God will welcome back into his reconciliation with the church and is inseparable from the reconciliation that they have with God, right? So very clearly what they're saying is if you sin, if you commit some sort of a sin within the Catholic church, in order to have reconciliation with the church, you have to go through this process of penance, which is where you go to the priest. Uh, You guys are probably, I don't know, if you're not a part of a Catholic church, you may have seen movies where, you know, they're sitting in their confessional booth. There's usually like a transom separating them of some sort. They tell, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been this long since my last confession. They go through their confession. Then the priest will usually give them some form of penance. You need to say, you know, five Hail Marys or something like that, and then you need to— Because to...
1: Matthew 6 doesn't exist, right? Right,
2: and, and then and when you listen to that, you're like, that's kind of interesting. But according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, what you didn't know is that if that person wouldn't have gone through that process, they actually would have been excluded from communion with God. Beyond that, the priest has the authority to exclude them from communion with God. So, if the priest denies them penance, if the priest says, no, like, you know, we're not going to have you come back to the church, you actually are outside of the grace of God. Now, again, does that happen? Well, yeah, in church history, that has happened. The Catholic Church has this fancy word, anathematized various individuals, including the Protestant reformers, right? <laughs> and some of their own the popes. Church. Yeah, and some of their own popes. So, the word anathema means to push out, to segregate, uh, to separate from the grace
1: of the church. So and It comes from Galatians 1, noting they're under the curse of God. And again, this idea of church discipline, mm-hmm. of being excluded from the church, we don't disagree with that, 100% right. scriptural. But right. the scope extending beyond and into your salvation right. is the issue here.
2: No, absolutely. And uh, beyond that, because they see this as a divine authority, remember, from the Roman Catholic perspective, And again, this isn't the Roman Catholic friend that you have or the Roman Catholic neighbor you have. This is from their dogmas, from their actual doctrine. The Roman Catholic position is that the church is infallibly led by the Holy Spirit. So if you might be thinking, well, that's a lot of power to invest in a priestly individual, that they could actually keep people out of heaven by saying no. Remember, from their perspective, the priests in this capacity can't err. Yeah, they can't I mean, make mistakes.
1: And it's taken directly from Matthew chapter 16. They quoted it to us. Mm-hmm. If the apostles, as representatives Christ, can't err, then, of course, they'd be the infallible authority. And let me read it again, Matthew 16 and verse 23. Uh, he turned, Jesus, and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for... Oh, oh, I read too far ahead. Um, (laughs) Let me get the joke. Uh, It was immediately after their passage that they eisegete, meaning they isolate and interpret as (laughs) the infallible authority. Matthew 16, verses 17 through 19, if you catch my smarminess there, the emphasis is on taking something, a single doctrinal statement, and extending not just its significance but its scope, into and affecting salvation, which right. is unbiblical. Right. And that's what we challenge.
2: Right. No, absolutely. And uh, so so again, when we're looking at this idea of binding and loosing, this is something that a lot of Protestants struggle with, right? So a lot of Protestants, when they read Matthew 16, they kind of are like, whoa, that sounds a lot like the Pope, you know? They, they get a little bit freaked out. And there have been actually some very bad interpretations in Matthew 16 to try to get around what Jesus is saying here. Yeah, one now,
1: error answered with another is not good Bible handling.
2: Now, you got to remember, Jesus isn't plucking this language out of thin air. This concept of binding and loosing has been something that has been a part of God's people since the time of Moses. Uh, it was a It was a power that God had given to the Sanhedrin as well as the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. Now, what it means essentially to bind and loose would be the ideas, as you said, Sean, be, uh, getting people outside of the fellowship of the church, right? Church discipline. So if somebody is acting or behaving in a way that's not congruent with what God's law is, the church acting in the mode of the nation of Israel has a power. They have a judicial authority to kick people out. Now, that, that might be Those intimidating in to some. the church. That's right. It might be intimidating to some, but as Sean said, the church doesn't function as a get-together spot right? When Jesus built the church, he's not building a mall or a hangout center or something like that. God is building, Jesus is building a literal governmental structure and he imbibed it with judicial power. Now, remember, as Sean said, it's not that that power extends beyond the church. Uh, That's a mistake that the church has made at various times in history, but it's a power that only exists within the fellowship and the communion of the church itself. But the church leadership does have the power and authority to bind and loose, to excommunicate, if you will, people who are engaging in unrepentant sin. And then they have the ability to restore people to the role of the church as well, to to bring them back into authority. But the church can err. We can make a mistake. We could accidentally excommunicate someone that shouldn't, and we can neglect to reconcile someone that we should. Do we have any examples In the New Testament, the early church, of the church blowing it on this binding and loosing principle?
1: Well, if I can go off the back of my hand, there are some where the church definitely uh, jumped the gun as far as racial issues are concerned. Uh, That was, of course, the Galatian heresy. If you want to read more about the historical background, you can read the book of Acts. But essentially, the first. Well, all six chapters, but the first two specifically chapters of the book of Galatians are addressing a mistake that the Apostle Peter made in isolating himself, of of literally loosing his fellowship with people on the basis of the fact they weren't Jewish. And, of course, Jewish not just in ethnicity, but also in custom and in practice, they hadn't been circumcised, was the big I guess, uh, non-negotiable issue that they were having trouble with. So when it comes to the Church's judgment on this matter, it got so heated that when Paul the Apostle was rumored to be messing around with those unclean Gentiles, he had to literally call to task the entire Church and say, Uh, Isaiah 11 and verse 10 says what it says, and the Messiah's name even the Gentiles will hope, and it goes on to say that in chapter 42, I believe. But the uh, point of emphasis was, again, so racially based and so racially motivated, they just wouldn't see past that prejudice. So what happened? They convened the first church council, the council of Jerusalem, and they said, hey, examining this from Scripture, looking at how it's been lived out, not only verified through miracles, but affirmed by the Holy Spirit and consistent with his word, the Apostle James, leader of the early church, by the way, said, I can't contradict any of this. Right. So that was how that was settled. But notice that as the church was functioning, and again, the word church, you see ecclesical, that's what that idea in mind has there, is a gathering of like-minded people. Like-minded and compared to who? To the majority opinion? No, to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. that's what we're united in.
2: And, uh, you know, very interesting, uh, just a couple points on that. The first one is is that not only did they blow it in Galatians in a much bigger sense, but you actually see instances in them blowing it in smaller senses. So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul points out that they're not loosing someone from the fellowship that they should, right? A guy who was having sexual relations with his Mother, maybe stepmother, but you know, yeah,
1: because that's so much better.
2: Yeah, it's so much better. Uh, and then in Second Corinthians, there's a lot of insinuation that it's the same guy has actually repented from the behavior that he was engaging in, and they were not binding him again, they weren't bringing him back into the fellowship. And Paul has to call him out on that. Uh, Paul also calls out uh, the, the church that Timothy was over in Ephesus mm-hmm. in First Timothy where they're not once again loosing certain individuals from their fellowship for their heretical teaching. So, you do see instances where this happens. You see instances in the book of Revelation where whole churches are off in this and Jesus has to threaten them where he's like, "What are you guys thinking? You've invited Jezebel into your church." You know, like there's so there are many instances in even in the early church where the church completely blows this. So, remember, it's not infallible. So, why should we read Jesus's words that seem pretty clear-cut? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven in an other-than-literal meaning. Uh, Now, remember, Jesus actually talks like this multiple times throughout his ministry. So he says things to the effect of, whatever you ask in my name will be granted to you. So it seems to be saying your decision moves heaven. But if you continuously read Jesus in that fashion, you get a lot of heretical and anti-logical statements from the mouth of our lord the more logical and better interpreted way of looking at this that again fits into what we see in the early church and throughout the rest of the bible is jesus is not saying what you do on earth moves heaven but he's instead saying heaven's position is fixed and if you align with it it will be honored
1: in jesus name that's the point of emphasis that's right so uh
2: once again it's very interesting uh, I don't think we have time to really get into the Pope right now. Do, do you do you want to get into that today, or do you want to wait for another time?
0: Yeah, we'll see how the questions are looking. What do you think, Dave? All right, it's uh, up to you guys. We have a couple of questions coming in already. We have um, a few comments coming in about the new studio and the new digs. People like it and the different camera angles, and it's draws you in and it's engaging. So, um. so for the sake of what we've been discussing on penance and so
1: forth, as long as scripture is the focus, I think that's clear. But what have we discussed so far, just for the sake of those listening?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. so the, the idea of penance is, once again, a Roman Catholic view, that once you sin, in order to be reconciled to the church, you have to go through this, this process of penance, where you confess to a priest, and you go through some sort of obligatory uh, penance process, right? Where you have to do something to yourself, to prove your loyalty to the church, and then through being received back into the church, you're literally being received back into heaven. So from the Roman Catholic perspective, you can lose your salvation and regain it multiple times. Now, interestingly, one more point that I want to point that I want to illuminate here is that some Protestants have kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to this tradition, which is one of the limitations and problems that permeates the Protestant movement as a whole because we have such offense to some of these practices that were happening within the Roman Catholic Church, we're cutting down the tradition without acknowledging that there's a reason why the tradition exists, right? So they went too far. They said that this is necessary for your salvation, but there was a reason why the Catholic Church instituted a process in which someone could confess openly to the pastoral staff and to be reconciled to the body through a penitenti- uh, penitentiary type of movement. Now the reason why it's in there is because it's in the Bible. In James five sixteen it says, "Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed." In Galatians chapter six verses one through two, the Apostle Paul encourages. He says, uh, "You who are spiritual, if you see such a brother overtaken in any sin, you should restore such one in a spirit of gentleness." So you have various instances in the New Testament where the church is encouraged to confess to one another and be accountable to one another and help one another out in their spiritual walks. Because the Protestant Reformation is like, well, you know, penance is garbage, that's not how you get saved, they've unfortunately thrown out the process of confession as well. So you don't see a lot of confession happening within Protestant churches, and that's horrible because what it's done is it's created environments in which people are hypocritically behaving in a way where they feel like they're above the law. They haven't violated it, and therefore they don't need to be restored to the body or the fellowship. They don't see their individual sins as harming the body of God, and they definitely don't see as though they have to give account to the body of God for their behavior. So there's a lot of negativity in the Protestant neglect of the traditions that came before us. So again, we have to be very careful as Protestants. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is why uh, you know, our pastor, Bolette had to actually start a group where men can come and confess to sexual sins, which both me and you are members of. And he tells us all the time, he's like, I wish we didn't have to have a group. (laughs) I wish that people would just come to church and see the church as their group, that they can confess to these kinds of things and they could find accountability within the body writ large and find that type of uh, beautiful communion that we see in James 5.16. So it's very tragic that that's happened, but it's important to understand why the Protestants got rid of this tradition in the first place, but to also recognize maybe there
1: was some wisdom in the institution of this uh tradition even though it went too far yeah so in full summation just note this in john chapter 20 and verse 21 jesus speaking to his apostles post-resurrection said as a peace be to you as the father has sent me i also send you and when he had said this he breathed on them and said to them receive the holy spirit then said if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them if you retain the sins of any they are retained the assumption is okay this is past everyone who's acting with the authority of the apostles which the transmission of you have to isolate and misinterpret a lot of scripture in order to support but if on the other hand we're asking who forgives sins but god alone that's who we're acting on behalf of the holy spirit So if that's our goal and that is our focus, then he is the one who will, again, lead us into all truth, that that is the goal and focus of all confession, to say, I'm bringing this before God, I'm walking in the light as he is in the light, and I'm knowing that if I confess my sins, he is, not the church is. The one who is faithful and just, forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Confession is something we should pursue, but wisely and also doctrinally. But make sure that it's also not extended in its scope, that it affects our uh, assurance of salvation. That's what's key. Our assurance is in nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness, to quote the old hymn.
0: Nice. I had a question here from Marty. Um, when it comes to binding and loosing, as Peter Martin is mentioning, does that mean we have authority or power? Uh, to bind and loose you in the name of Jesus. I bind cancer, for example. I oh, bind poverty. I loose blessings, yeah. that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, so this would be a, uh, a misreading of those terms. So this would be people who didn't understand the historical terminology that Jesus is using, and they're applying it to other things. So they're saying that we have some sort of a power to bind uh, negative aspects of life or loose them by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not the authority that Jesus is giving his apostles there. Now, one could make an argument from various other passages that Jesus gives healing power to his church, but binding and loosing would be inappropriate language. Now, once again, this is also not something that man on earth can influence the will of God. So the more charismatic branches of Christianity have unfortunately taken some of the authority that God did give to his church, that we do have the capacity to heal, but we only have the capacity to heal in concert with the movement of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit can choose to heal people, but almost never, and this is really interesting, almost never will the Holy Spirit act in in a healing manifestation that is absent from the movement of God's body. So in other words, why why is it that the Holy Spirit waits for Peter and John to grab the man who's crippled and say, in the name of Jesus, walk. Why did he wait? Why didn't he just do it? If that was his intent, why work through man? Well, it's because that's God's uh, perennial intent, is to work through man, is to always allow mankind to be the arbitrator of his glory. This is what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. So while God will work through, the Holy Spirit will work through the behavior and prayers of the church, it doesn't mean that he's bound to our whims. So God no matter will
1: work through us.
2: That's right. So it doesn't mean that just because I want someone to be healed, the Holy Spirit will choose to heal that person. And we do see instances in the Bible where God does not choose to heal some very faithful people. The Apostle Paul being the classic example of this. Second Corinthians twelve, uh, Paul literally says that he prays three times that God would deliver him from some sort of a thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what it was, but God says no. Says, my grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, my strength will be made perfect. So uh, not only do I, I believe that, I, I really appreciate the question, but not only do I believe that it's an inappropriate reading of binding and loosing, but I also think it's an inappropriate application of what the church's authority
0: is. Mm. Yeah, and thank you, Marty, for that, for that question and clarification. Question from Maxwell. Are angels perfect, or do they make mistakes? Was the angel Gabriel perfect and then made perfect when he chose not to rebel like Satan? Um, and what does it mean that we will judge angels? This is a question for Maxwell. Thank you for that question as well.
1: Okay, a few passages there. I guess, uh, what is an angel? An angel isn't a what, it's a what they're doing. It's a description of their job, not their genus, as I oftentimes say. Uh, the word angel or malach in Hebrew just means messenger, and there are human beings that are referred to as angels. In, for example, the book of Malachi, his human author's name is my messenger. In the book of Revelation, chapters one through three, the uh, author or the church, uh, the angels of the churches are referring to most would translate as the pastors, the heads of the churches. We don't see an example elsewhere in Scripture of there's like being a guardian angel of Calvary Chapel or something. That would be uh, reading into the text, not out. So if we're then asking the question, what determines their right relationship with God, I think it's not necessarily go off of what we don't know, but come to conclusions on what we do. If you remember yesterday, we talked about how the, with Lucifer's accountability when he fell, the reason why his sin of pride made such an eternal impact on him, whereas we sin many times a day, and it can still be forgiven by the Lord, that the author of Hebrews notes. He does not give aid to angels, but does give aid to the sons of Abraham, We, again, have to go off of what we have, not what we don't have. So what do we know? Well, Jesus made a point in the Gospel of Luke following the parables that he was giving, to him whom much is given, much shall be required. So when it comes to a righteous angel, we're looking from the perspective of a heavenly being, a spiritual entity like Gabriel, who had the full understanding and experience of God's glory and chose to say, This is awesome. I like it. But if, on the other hand, you're put in a position where you're asking, well, could Gabriel in the future tense fall? That'd be weird. That'd be an inference, not a a, uh, conclusion you could come to from the text. It would be an assumption with our fallen nature imposed onto something other than us, and that's just not how it works. Mm -hmm. The difference between an angel and a demon, though, is important to note, and it's literally their relationship with God. If we know they can't be redeemed, we ask the question—this is mostly what you're asking—what is the scope of that? What were the terms of that? Was there like this uh, pre-existence for them, like in Mormonism, or is there this great test that they were subjected to and the demons were the ones that failed? Again, we aren't told. We shouldn't come to those conclusions if we have no reason to. But we are told in Revelation chapter 12 that when Satan uh, rebelled, that a third of the stars of heaven, in reference to the book of Job— fell with him, and that was, of course, a conscious choice. And We don't know of, uh, you know, Lucifer coercing the minds like some Sith sorcerer or whatever, you know, so we need to be careful with that. What do we know about the angel Gabriel, that he was called an angel, not because that's what he is, but what he was doing with Daniel, with Mary, and with Zacharias, and other things as well, but he's just another spiritual entity, a very privileged one and that he always seems to be associated with the pronouncements of the messiah that's why we oftentimes see him and that's probably why we're told his name we aren't told a lot about the angels as far as our relationship though with them uh, that is an open question as far as what does it mean that we will judge angels and i think it's worth noting what judgment is paul was again speaking to the corinthian church but how would a uh Jewish and Greek audience take that term as opposed to us? Because, again, if we don't get angel right, who else is—what else are we mistaking?
2: Uh, yeah, so the, the, the passage in question is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 1. Uh, and Paul says this, "'Dare any of you, having a matter against a brother, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters?' Do you not know that we shall judge angels, and how much more things that pertain to this life? So when you see him saying, we will judge the world, that gives us a pretty good hint of what he's talking about, because we know for a fact that there's only one who's going to judge the world, and that is Jesus. So clearly he's not talking about the church having some sort of an authority to judge up or judge down the world, to say like, hey— you got. we like you, you're coming in, You. we don't like you, you're going to hell. No, that's Jesus' authority in him alone. We see this in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne of judgment. But what he's clearly talking about is exercising authority over, right? There's going to be some sort of an, uh, an exercising of authority that predominates the world and predominates even angelic beings. So this is, again, God's intent from the beginning is to co-rule and reign with people right? So when he creates man in his image and likeness, and he allows Adam to have authority over the garden to be able to, to name all the creatures, God's intent is always to create a loving relationship with mankind. And that means uh, a true loving relationship, the dynamic that the Bible uh, shows is not that of a slave to a master, but he usually actually uses the analogy of husband to wife. So God is going to see mankind as being a partner or a helper in his work in eternity which is a pretty radical statement. Now, a couple of just quick things I want to mention about that. Some again in the more charismatic movement would say like, "Oh, okay, we're going to be able to judge angels. So that means we could also judge demons, and that means that I could call out demons, you know. That that means that I can actually spend my prayer time yelling at Satan for all the evil and horrible things that he's doing and he's shaken in his boots because of the Holy Spirit that is within me. Uh, There are many passages I could go to to refute that point, but the big one is in the book of Jude, right? And in Jude chapter, well, Jude, Jude, uh, the first chapter of Jude, because there's only one chapter, Jude says specifically to people who think this way, he says they rail against things that they do not understand. And he says, don't you know that even the archangel Michael, when he was calling out Satan, he didn't call him out in his own power, but he says, the Lord rebuke you. So Jude is referencing if even powerful angels like Michael have to resort to God in order to deal with demonic entities, don't think that you are hot stuff and you can go up against Satan. Like you you have to rely upon the power and authority of God. In our resurrected state, because of the dignity that God has given to mankind, we will have a hierarchy in which man will be able to rule over angels. But that doesn't mean that, again, on this earth we can exercise dominance over angelic beings. That's not what the Bible is talking about. Uh, the second thing, and, and the more important, is this does actually get back into what we were talking about in the opening, and that is the role of the church. Paul is using this specifically in the context to suggest that the church has power and authority to rule over one another. So when he's saying don't go to the courts, but instead handle things in-house, what he's saying is the the courts, especially at Paul's time, were antagonistic towards the faith of Christians. And he's saying, God has given us the power to rule over these things in ourselves. So uh, there's many things I could say about this, but just to cut it short, if you're living in an environment where the court systems are stacked against you, Paul would, his advice to you would be, keep things in house as much as you can. If you are dealing with a court system that upholds the scripture as being its foundation and the way that it's going to arbitrate justice, then you can go to those secular courts in order to get your judgment done. But Paul is saying if you're in an antagonistic environment, don't do that because the church has this role and authority over its own congregants. Those who attend, they're in an authoritative hierarchical stance between them and the church, and that will be reflected in heaven, and that will be most seen in Paul's eyes in
1: man's authority over even angelic beings. Yeah, and if you want the hierarchy summed up, this is the book of Hebrews chapter 2, and starting in verse 5, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. So notice there will be the world to come, and it's not in subjection to angelic beings. Then it goes on to talk about someone other than angels. But in one place, uh, but one testified at a certain place, this is quoting Psalm 8, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him. You have made him, notice this is our status now, a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with honor and glory and have set him over the works of your hands. This is in reference to Genesis chapter 2. You have put all things in subjection under his, notice singular, feet. For in that he put in, uh, put all in subjection under him. He left nothing, that is, not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him but when we see jesus who was made a little lower than the angels he became man for the suffering and death of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of god might taste death for everyone so notice again this status that we're being given as far as humanity standing comparison to the angels in the world to come we will be higher than we are now in the status of which we were created we've been made a little lower than Mm -hmm. they, that is the angelic beings, are now. If that's then the understanding then it would just be like noting not in intelligence obviously but in roles of creation like us and the animals. We exercise dominion over them like in Eden, not to abuse or eat. We won't be having, you know angel wings for a uh, sports night or whatever <laughs>
0: it will be emphasizing that man that's an image uh, that's the point that's being made yeah thank you so much and thank you for that question um, we have a question here apparently the uh, creator of VeggieTales has caused a stir saying that uh, he's pro-choice uh, on abortion mm. um, and the, the general question over this is what should the Christian response be like in this case, should we boycott watching Veggie Tales? And I think about this as well as far as songs. You know, some of these uh, groups as a worship leader, some of these groups that write a lot of worship songs, put out a lot of worship songs, and then come out saying that they are, you know, evolutionists or whatever. Should we then boycott that whole institution? Um, what should our response be to that? I think, again, just my
1: opinion here, not doctrine. It's going to have to be a person by person. Act of discernment as far as the kind of content you take in and why. Are you doing this motivation-wise in order to support the artist or because, and this is why you're watching it, supporting their product? Or are you watching the product because it's a good product? I can't tell you the last time I watched VeggieTales, not because of political views of the author, just hasn't been as good anymore and that's my reason for watching might have it. to do with your age <laughs> you i watch things that are not designed for my demographic and not only as a brony but you as a disney princess fan don't get to talk either i don't care if you have a daughter. this is a safe spice guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's safe you can may not be their demographic <laughs> <laughs> nor is most of their audience but the point being made is you go to like their first film rack shack and benny what is it it's a albeit humorous, but almost carbon copy of Daniel chapter 3, I believe. um, No, was it Daniel 3 or Daniel 4? I believe 3, yeah. Uh, On the other hand, you go to the uh, Indiana Jones parodies or uh, some of their attempts at retelling the accounts of Joseph but doing it in a Midwestern setting. It's fun cartoon. Just have fun with it. But if, on the other hand, you can't distinguish from the art and the artist, then the first challenge to that mindset, again, opinion, not doctrine, is how do you be consistent with that? Uh, Do you have to boycott Amazon services because they produce apostate Mm -hmm. content like the Rings of Power? maybe, but that's another issue. Uh, if you have uh, concerns with you know gasoline companies being largely taken from Muslim nations and the persecution there, do you have to switch to a dune buggy and a horse? Is the uh, stables at which that horse is bred held by people with bizarre political leanings and it just ends up being nonsense. If on the other hand, you'd say, okay, to this point or this movie, this show, I see something godly in it. It either gets my nose in the Bible, or it's not currently poisoning me. That's a plus these days, sometimes the most we can ask for. I'd say just stick to the art, not the artist. But if Mm -hmm. you can't do that, and this was a a personal conviction between my father and I, then distance yourself as you are convinced in your own mind, referencing Romans 14. And uh, putting this into practice, it was the reason why my father and I don't don't uh, go to Chick-fil-A as often anymore. We used to go to it on a weekly basis, but not because we just love their food that much. You can get chicken in a lot of places. But because they were taking a public stand for biblical values, Mm. we wanted to support that. That was our reason for going. And then being consistent, which is our hope, when they stopped donating to Fellowship for Christian Athletes, started donating to churches that were putting on the page of their website, videos of them bringing women to abortion clinics, and of course going out and basically throwing every value apart from closing on Sunday, as far as the Bible is concerned, out the window, and being abusive, by the way, as far as our local establishment is concerned, towards members of our church that used to work there. We didn't want to go anymore, not because, oh, it's unholy chicken now, it's just now the reason we're going is because we supported them doing things they're no longer doing. So why continue to support them? Mm. On the other hand, you'd say, okay, well, the reason I watch VeggieTales is because its creator is upholding Christian values. I doubt that was the reason you started watching it. I think it was just either A, a fun cartoon, B, a well-done cartoon, C, a well-done Christian cartoon, which in that order is a rarity in and of itself. You have to ask the question then, what am I still watching it for? Is it because of the founder or the product? I'd say stick with the product because that's reason enough, to, I think, to stop watching it now.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Opinion, not doctrine, but take it for what you will. <clears throat> yeah, and, and, you know, like I say, relating to songs, you really can we really uh, investigate the source of every you know resource that we use whether it's song or show like do we you know can we really go to that end and do you want to know how the sausage is made right <laughs> yeah exactly exactly we we can't but but like you say our conviction um seeking those convictions be, before the law but i have had you know people in the church certain songs even lyrically you know come and say that they were sort of stumbled by it or something and you know i could make an argument for for why they shouldn't be but the the ultimate thing is there's a lot of other songs and you know a lot of other shows and if that's your conviction before the lord then then certainly follow those convictions but yeah yeah Thank you so much uh question from jorge why was eve created after adam um and then he's also mentioning i do not permit women to teach why not and why didn't God do di- things differently? So really a question around...
1: Three-part questions. Um, <laughs> he <didn't> make <laughs> yeah. Eve first because he didn't Anything make else Eve you want first.
0: I don't know what else
1: can be said for that, but if, uh, we're going to ask the question again. What was the second part to it before the se- first Timothy 2 thing?
0: About not uh, permitting women to teach. Okay, so, so I guess the, the roles system. of men and women and the, the order of creation and the authority and those things, you know, general things. Well You, Go. Know, you know you know how <laughs> fond
1: we are of hypotheticals. What if God made woman first, then he would have also have made other things differently, but he didn't, so let's just stick with what we've got. If on the other hand we're gonna say, and this is the oftentimes the challenge here, does that mean that men are superior to women in the same way that, you know, order of creation is determined on the other things? Well, you'd have to take that to its logical end because animals were created before us yet we're in authority over them. So obviously it's not an issue of chronology here. If on the other hand you're going to say, oh, well, you know, uh, Adam was created over Eve in authority, therefore that shows that he's superior to her. Again, this illustration is applied in Scripture regarding members of the Trinity in status and function, and the Son isn't inferior to the Father in his status as God. So I can't say as well that women are inferior in status as humans. So that's an uh, inconsistent conclusion. I think we'll just go to the passage. Why does it say, what is it saying, first of all, when it says I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man? Does that mean that, A, she's not allowed to talk, period, in a church setting, and Titus 2 doesn't exist? Or are we uh, letting our culture dictate biblical terms here?
2: Yeah, no, uh, I said very, very, very timely question, very good for the culture we live in right now. Uh, so first Timothy chapter 2 uh, verse, let's start in verse 9. in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with all self-control. So Paul is... Again, he's organizing the church structure in First Timothy. That's, that's the purpose of the book, is he's instructing his protege on how to order the church in a way that honors God. Now, Paul sees everything in the church as being something that should directly reflect some aspect of God's glory. So he's not just arbitrarily saying this or that. And if you notice, his reasoning in First Timothy chapter 2 for assigning particular roles to men versus women has nothing to do with competency. Right? So it has nothing to do with, well, I feel like men are smarter than women, so therefore women shouldn't teach. It's their roles within the Church are supposed to reflect a very unique thing about God and his glory. So when he talks about the order of creation, we have to remember, and Christianity is very unique in this, Christianity has a doctrine called the Trinity. So we have a triune God that has multiple persons, yet one singular being. Uh, and that, uh, that being of God we call, again, the Trinity, Comprised of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, each member of the Trinity has a very particular role within the Trinity, which you alluded to earlier. So, the Son, when he comes to the earth, he submits to the Father willingly. Um, he actually acknowledges that his Father is the one that is commanding him to do things. He only does things as the Father commands him or wills him to do. Uh, and beyond that, the Son ob- obediently goes even to the point of death. And the writer of Hebrews points this out that he was made perfect in his obedience even obedience unto death. So we see this hierarchy within the Trinity itself. And God, who is creating, he wants to represent, that's the whole purpose of man, we're made in his image and likeness, he wants to represent himself through mankind, right? And so when he creates a dichotomy within our gender system, he's doing that with purpose, that men and women are supposed to be distinctive and unique from one another, yet complementary to one another, and therefore equal in status and honor before God. And again, this is very telling that God takes Eve out of Adam. You can't really make an argument that Eve is lesser than Adam because she is of his very same substance and essence. She literally comes from him. So it's a very interesting dichotomy that God is creating there and a very interesting reason as to why. Now, Paul also mentioned something that I don't think anyone would disagree with because you you can't. I mean, some people in our culture are trying to, but not very effectively that if you have a problem with roles in general, well, verse 15 says, nevertheless, you will be saved in childbearing. Uh, That is a role that is exclusively for a woman. No matter how much a man might want to take on that role, he can't, right? That's just something he doesn't have the ability or capacity to do. Now, uh, there's many ways that we could look at this, but in 1 Corinthians 11, there is a direct correlation made between man and the father and woman and the son. And again, you alluded to this earlier. So God is saying that in the dichotomy between men and women, there is a specific relation to the way that the father and the son relate to one another. In Isaiah chapter 53, for instance, it talks about the son, right, the the Messiah, the suffering Messiah, bearing offspring, talks about his seed being within them. And he talks about uh, seeing his offspring and being happy. So there's this idea that the son is having children. There's a reason why we're called Christians. We're of the Messiah. We're we're of Christ. We're not fatherlings, right? We're not we're not children of the Father in that sense. We are children of Christ. We are literally from him in his resurrection and in his resurrection power, living out the life that honors God Himself. So women being having the capacity to bear children actually does reflect the mission of the Son, to come and to bear children in his image and likeness through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why he's called the first fruits. Now, when he commands men to have this very particular role of leadership within the church, he's saying that men are to reflect the Father, right? It wouldn't make any sense for men to be reflective of the Father and then to exercise a hierarchical structure in which women are above them because that wouldn't be reflective of the Godhead. The Godhead is reflected in the Father exercising authority over the Son, not the other way around. So something here is being forbidden from women for this purpose. Again, it is not the purpose of competency. It is the purpose of roles that reflect the very particular and unique glory that God himself has. That's why we're doing this the way that we are. Now, what is being forbidden to women? There's actually a lot of debate about what is actually being forbidden here. Some people believe uh, on the more you guess right-wing side, I guess you could call it, they believe that what God is saying is that women literally cannot talk within the fellowship of the church. So they're like, you know, they just have to be in silence and submission. They have to kind of, you know, keep their heads down and just pray pray quietly, but they can't really talk, they can't pray, they can't really do anything. They they have no capacity within the church. Uh, maybe they can hang out with the kids sometimes, but that's about it. So that that's some more, like, this is, again, hardcore right. Most, most churches don't fall under that category. Then more on the left side, it's, well, nothing is being forbidden here. Nothing is being restricted from women because we live in this egalitarian society where men and women are totally equal, and therefore there are no restrictions on roles and responsibilities between the sexes. Um, obviously, that's nonsensical. You would have to just basically throw out the writings of Paul, but... If I'm going to take this seriously, something has to be forbidden here. Now, the way that we take it at this church is that there is this little nuance within the Greek when he says in verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Now, there's a nuance in Greek that leads some people to think that that should actually be translated, I do not permit a woman to teach and to have authority over a man. So in other words, the teaching authority of the church, the eldership of the church was demonstrated through their teaching capacity. We see this in the very next chapter where he tells the elders have to be teachers. And then we also see this in the book of Acts where the apostles were separated from the deacons in their teaching capacity. So there's this idea that it's not that the deacons couldn't teach, they did, Right, Stephen actually gives a pretty good sermon in, in Acts chapter 7. And then he but, got killed. Then he got killed for it, but, you know, for his trouble. But at any rate, it doesn't mean that they can't teach. It's that the authority of the apostles were exercised through their teaching capacity. So so in other words, he's not saying women can't teach. He's saying women can't operate in that head pastoral role and exercise that role through their teaching capacity. As you mentioned earlier, there are instances in the Bible in which women do teach. We have prophetesses mentioned in the book of Acts and we also have instances in which women are teaching other women in Titus chapter 2. So it can't be take, taken in that strictly, you know, hardcore right wing way, but it also can't be taken in that hardcore left wing way because Paul's clearly saying something. So we have to distinguish between the roles and the responsibilities. So it's a friendly conversation that I'm willing to have with other churches if we disagree about this passage. As long as we can agree that something is being forbidden here, I can have that conversation with you. So some churches will say like, well, you know, like women are not allowed to have like some sort of a head pastoral role, but we live in a denomination. We, we work in a denomination. So therefore, a woman could be the head pastor as long as she's, she's in submission to kind of our denominational headquarters. Um, okay. You know, again, I disagree with that, but I see their point and we can have a friendly argument about that. Uh, so, and someone who's like, well, no, 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 you should never have women teaching unless there's some sort of an authoritative role of a man over them. Again, I disagree with that, but, you know, it could be a friendly disagreement. I don't think that it's something we need to lose our heads over.
1: It's just something that we can have that, that kind of godly debate and discussion over. But when it comes to it in proper execution, the question still needs to be answered in regards to those perhaps on the outside looking in that the church oppresses women well, once again, we need to, just like you did with Titus, test our conclusions as much as our interpretations, not to say that there is a right or wrong way to approach this, it's still a conversation, but the wrong way to conclude this is when it's in direct conflict with other plain statements of Scripture. So if, on the other hand, I were to say, the Church oppresses women, well, Throughout the ages, people have oppressed a lot of different groups of people, not just women, but that's hardly representative of Jesus. Can we support that claim, that example, with Jesus? As I recall, who were the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection? It was a woman, Mary Magdalene. If I ask the question, okay, there is no example in the early church of people exercising prophetic authority or teaching ability in the Word of God, you mentioned Philip's seven daughters. If I go to the Old Testament and say God has never moved in his spirit to speak through women. Exodus 15, the song of Miriam. she was a prophetess and one of the Tetra or triarchs of Israel as a leader at that time. If we're going to go to the wives of the prophets and them being advisors to kings, We can go on and on, and Deborah is a necessary leader because Barak was a coward. The point of emphasis needs to be, okay, your interpretation is that's oppressive. My passage (laughs) would directly conflict with that interpretation, so we should revisit it. As far as its execution goes, that remains open and needs to remain friendly. But if people are being hostile with you about this, make sure that you check them with reality. And if they don't regard that, then nothing you say would matter anyway.
2: Yeah, and I guess I would just follow it up by saying, like, I think in our modern day, anyone would see hierarchy structures as being necessarily oppressive, right? So there's this view that came through um in you know the 19th century through marxism that any type of hierarchy is necessarily an oppressive system and therefore this egalitarian viewpoint that we have that predominates our culture the idea that unless everyone has total equality there is some sort of oppression that is happening uh that philosophy is the one that has corrupted this ideology that there there has to be absolute equality within roles Otherwise there's no equality at all. Uh, that's, that's a really weird way to put it, but it even gets to the heart of, of some of the feminist speakers, right? Where the feminist speakers would agree with me. They'd be like, yeah, it is oppressive that women have to bear children. That is an oppressive role. So any distinction between men and women would be seen as a, as a form of oppression and therefore needed to be gotten rid of. So we have to also be careful of like, okay, well, if you believe that, if you believe that any form of hierarchy is oppressive, really not much we could say then, because th- then you're saying that we have to throw out all rules and we have to throw out all roles in general. Um, I, would, I would have to have a very different conversation with that person, not just what does the Bible say about this, but how did you come to the conclusions that all hierarchy is oppressive? And then you'd really have to look at the Godhead and see something very strange, because again, the Godhead functions in a hierarchical system. The Father is over the Son
0: and the Spirit. So um, yeah, it's interesting. Mm, thank you. you have a a question here very briefly we're almost at the end of our time here but from mac d does being broken in spirit bring us closer to the lord i don't want to think i'm doing good when in reality deep down inside i'm broken and lost and need a savior in my life which is humbling and first of all our hearts go out to you mac and um we will be praying for you but um you know is that dark night of the soul a dark season um, does that bring us closer to the Lord, as God has purpose in that? And again, we just have a couple of minutes here, but any thoughts on that? Well, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Remember, that's a two-step
1: process. If we don't allow the second step to take place, then it's just depression for depression's sake. I, that's not the point of the passage. We humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord because we need to be. James was making the point in light of the fact that we need to be broken over our sin. But if we don't follow through on that and realize... I've been redeemed from it and rejoice, then we're missing the whole point as to what that humbling was supposed to accomplish. God doesn't want us to be dejected. He wants us to be brought back to reality. And if that reality needs us to be knocked down a few notches, then don't think, well, if I knock myself down all the notches, that means I'm super saved.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I would also mention that uh, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mm. Right. So in our culture, I think there's a, a shame attached to any type of mourning or grief and uh, that's a really unfortunate thing. But a lot of people feel embarrassed, right? So when I do hospital visits, people feel embarrassed to cry or weep openly uh, because they think it's some sort of a shameful behavior or something like that. So I think that also could be taken in the sense of, is it good to be broken before God in the sense of sorrow? And the answer is yes, because the only way that you're going to receive comfort is if you're willing to grieve openly before the Lord, and comfort is an amazing thing. It's not God removing pain, but it's God's presence within pain. And I'll tell you that the times in my life where I have felt closest to God have been in times of grieving. So,
0: yeah. Mm. Awesome. Well, we are at the end of our time. Mac, we will, I assure you, when we come off air, we'll pray for you. Um, I kind of feel your pain there over, even over the chat. Thank you so much for joining us Um, again here on A Reason for Hope. We'll be back um, same time tomorrow, Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m., Thank you so much for your questions. Thank you for joining us and uh, we will we will see you next time. God bless you guys.
1: been listening to a reason for hope thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through god's word one question of the heart at a time until we meet again we would love to connect with you you can text or email your questions to questions for hope at gmail.com you can also find out more about our ministry at calvary christian fellowship.com and be sure to join us next time on a reason for hope a reason for hope is an outreach ministry of calvary christian fellowship in tucson arizona